The first two programs ever to be copyrighted in the mid-1960s, um, the office didn't know how to classify them, so it called them books or pamphlets. And until 1980, as far as the Copyright Office was concerned, computer program was to be registered as a book or pamphlet. From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Ben Spohn. And I'm Amaris Williams. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections. So my name is Con Diaz. I am an assistant professor of science and technology studies at the University of California at Davis. I am currently writing a history of software patenting in the United States, and I came to Hagley because you have two amazing collections on IBM's history. And these collections bring together many, many documents that the federal government discovered over the course of a very long trial. So I've been looking at those documents, uh, annotating them, and working them into my book. Well, why don't you tell me a little bit first about the larger book project that um, your research here at Hagley is a part of. Um, so history of software patenting, what does that look like? So. It, the history of software patenting ends up looking like a history of the software industry. What you do is consider the, the legal and extra legal means that people have used to own software and to try to profit from it and use that as an entryway of understand, for, to understand the political economy of the industry itself. So uh, this history is as much about the technical details that go into, go into making a machine as it is about the many ways in which lawyers and engineers can try to interpret that and translate that into a patent format. And then above all of this is the industry changing all the time. So what's the period that this um, so project covers? This is, this is an exciting question for me, actually. At first, uh, the standard narrative for the history was that software patenting began in the late 60s when uh, the software industry in, in its more familiar shape started to emerge. But one thing that I've found over the years in this project is that the patent drafting techniques, the actual practices of securing protection for computer programs, uh, date back to the years after the Second World War. So this ends up being uh, a story that goes from the end of the Manhattan Project to the present day. So what does that arc look like? Um, how did people um, you know, software engineers and, um, you know, uh, corporate lawyers and um, yeah. whoever else are the characters in this story. How did they, can you give me some examples of some of the ways in which they sought to um, own this, you know, I was looking at your proposal again, this sort of intangible invention, uh -huh. right, as the, the title of your book has it. Um, how do they make that case? They made the case by making it tangible. Uh, their key strategy starting in the from the 50s up until the late 60s a very important strategy was to secure patent protection for programs indirectly by patenting instead a machine that works in accordance with the program so when lawyers did this they were able to bypass what's called the mental steps doctrine it's a, an age-old uh, assumption that 
steps that a human being can perform on his or her own, like counting, comparing, are not eligible for patent protection. Uh, when you have a computer program that says, say, performs multiplications, it it runs into the problem of the mental step doctrine immediately. So what a lot of industrial research laboratories, uh, especially Bell and Mobile Oil did, was to find ways of transforming this algorithm that you had into a machine arrangement. And this was based on basically the, the their what they perceived to be an interchangeability between uh, the logical operations of mathematical logic and the circuitry arrangements that they could create. So basically, logic became machines. That was their 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 tool. Yeah. I mean that's a really interesting story or finding because you know we think of this story, I think, generally as sort of being one of, of, of the opposite movement, the movement from something more concrete to something more abstract as you move from, you know, analog machines to digital machines, um, from punch cards to, you know, lines of computer code. Um, so that's a really interesting, you know, it, it's an interesting inversion, I think, of, of the way that we think the story, or at least maybe a back and forth yeah. between that um, the concrete and the more abstract. And I think the reason something like that could happen to begin with is that uh, with the original digital electronic general purpose computers, the act of programming these machines was actually very tangible. These say at the ENIAC, there was a team of women whose job was to open up the panels, rip out all the cables and plug them back in. And that was programming. And it was not until several years later that a conception of programming uh, uh, as a linguistic activity uh, started to, to come about and to emerge. That's uh, work that's been published recently by other historians. So that transition from a program as something that involves physical work to something that involves text and the subsequent uh, emphasis on the text itself kind of erased that original tangibility um, and uh, it erased it at many places except at the firms that continued to secure patents for machines in lieu of their programs. So when did the um, sort of emergence of kind of software itself as something you could patent, can you tell me a little bit about the chronology of that? Um, that is a tricky question uh, primarily because as conceptions of what a program is changed, conceptions of what patenting a program meant also changed. So uh, the chronology, I would say, is different. It's 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 just all throughout, <laughs> all throughout. But if it were to follow a few certain distinctive points, it was a a change from this embodiment, this original embodiment, um, at the very beginning to what eventually become towards the late 20th century an issue of implementation. The endpoints of this arc are my program becomes a machine, that's at the, at the beginning, and at the very end it's I will patent a machine implementation of my program. So the machine becomes a vehicle for it as opposed to the substance of the invention. That, that's, the big, that's the big arc. Tell me a little bit more about some of the specific materials that you're looking at here at Hagley um, and how those sort of fit into this story and what they, 
what they reveal or flesh out about this longer arc about software patenting and intellectual property. Mm -hmm. I'm here to study the period from 1950 until 1969, 1970. Uh, in particular, I'm here for IBM. My goal at the archives was to start treating IBM not as a monolithic firm, but as instead as, well, what it was, a collection of units uh, that were vertically arranged within the corporation and that moved together once a final decision had been done. But if I were to present IBM as a monolithical entity, I would have lost the dynamics of decision-making. What what did the executives think that software patents would do to their firm? They were, the, they were the most vocal opponents of software patenting well until the 1980s. So why did they think that? Why did they think that it was dangerous? Uh, what did they think that smaller firms would do with those patents? And what were the costs that they were trying to avoid? Um, and I'm especially focused on two moments in that period. Uh, one of them was, is the consent decree of 1956. It was an arrangement and that IBM agreed to start selling its machines instead of just leasing them and uh, it agreed to take certain measures regarding its control of its patents. And the other one that I'm thinking about a lot is uh, its unbundling in 1969. That's when uh, IBM started to sell its programs and services as distinct, uh, uh, as distinct services or products to their hardware. And uh, I've found so much here. It's amazing. So, so give me give me a sense, a taste of some of the things that you're finding. Uh, an example of yeah. something that made you sort of like sit up <laughs> in your chair, or um... I found uh, systems engineers describing what it was like to create programs at IBM, uh, telling stories about how difficult it was for them even to conceive of a program as a product instead of a service. And even these short stories uh, that the, the systems engineers uh, uh, shared are enough to show that one of the reasons IBM was hesitant to unbundle was that perhaps it just didn't have a conception of software as a product built into its business model. and. Um, they suddenly have had to develop it very, very quickly. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why they moved so fast uh, right before their announcement, just to get everything in place. So what are the kinds of programs that we're talking about here? Um, you know, I think today we think of, you know, um, just a standard, you know, personal computing application, something like Microsoft mm -hmm. Word or something like that. But I assume that the programs that you're talking about are, you have some similarities to those, but are a little distinct. So I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit about like what a program is in, you know, 1960. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of business programs. So processing payrolls, uh, keeping accounts, uh, at the banks, there were a lot of money exchange-related exchange, uh, uh, money exchange programs. Uh, industrial research laboratories had a lot of need for specialized scientific computation programs. Um, and the beauty of something like a general purpose programmable computer is that they would be able to load up all sorts of different kinds of tasks into it, as opposed to having to rewire it manually every time. Uh, the most 
popular programs that I'm finding are definitely uh, scientific applications and payroll. What are, what's the kind of hardware that we're talking about here, and how would people have loaded this software? Is the stuff that's coming on tape worth beyond punch cards at this point? Uh, no, so, so it could come in tape. Uh, uh, service person to could come in to create a special circuit that you could take out and put back in um it could it could come on a on punched tape as well um so the the methods of delivery there were there were several uh i still have to think more about delivery actually that that this is that moment that you said, thinking through what you just found. I'm still uh, trying to make sense of the role that actual delivery of programs played in uh, how firms conceptualize what their programs were. Because the means of delivery must play a role, yeah. You'll, I assume it would, you know, especially if you're, you're talking about this interaction between sort of the concrete thing you know, the, the instantiation of the program, whatever that is, whether it's, you know, lines of code encoded onto like some medium like tape or, you know, the physical punches in the tape or yeah. a punch card or something like that. Um, there, there has to be some like back and forth between those, the idea and the instantiation. Yeah. And, um, and in fact, that became one of their biggest tensions starting in the in the mid 60s. The simple question, what is software, became one of the most complicated ones that they could possibly face. And depending on what company you're thinking about, uh, you would have different conceptions of what software is. And one of my, my big arguments that I have ongoing in my previous work and in this one is that conceptions of the nature of software are not determined immediately by its technical specifications or what by what it is as an object but instead by the long-term business strategies uh, of the firms that were advancing these conceptions. So for example, for the longest time, IBM argued that software is a text and that it is therefore uh, best protected by copyrights, not patents. And opposed to them, software firms argued that software was a machine, no different than a car, and that patents were the best means for it. And industrial laboratories, would argue that software was some sort of a hybrid object that perhaps its nature depended at on the moment in its development at which you caught it and each of these conceptions served long-term business interests ibm perhaps wanted uh software to be a text because they knew that copyright protection was very weak that if you copyrighted a code that someone wrote someone who wrote the same program in a different language would not be infringing the copyright. That would enable them to continue drawing from whatever it is software firms were doing. Software firms knew that copyright was very weak and they gravitated towards patents because they found that this technique of embodying software was giving them at least something that they could show to IBM to try to keep them off at bay. And industrial research laboratories, they changed whichever conception they advanced based on what needs they had. They didn't make them they didn't make money from selling software. They made their money say by uh, maintaining telephone lines for the entire country. So their main interest there was to protect their telephony and they were willing to switch what whichever conception of software they wanted based on what their telephony needs were. So this becomes at the end uh, 
uh, a story of firms debating and negotiating the nature of software based on whichever short, medium, and long-term business needs they might have. I know you're looking also at like some antitrust yeah. um, materials in the archives. How do those materials fit in to your story? Antitrust matters because patents can serve as a weapon to slow down a competitor. And if a firm develops a habit of slowing down its competitors often and aggressively, then the Department of Justice's antitrust uh, division, especially in the 50s, would have taken note. So antitrust matters because it restrained firms from engaging in some of the patenting that they would have engaged otherwise. It uh, obligated them to grant licenses to anybody who asked. For example, that happened to IBM in 56. There was a, one of the consent decree uh, requirements that was that IBM would grant to anyone who asks a non-exclusive patent for a low fee that was to be overseen by a court. So basically, antitrust law is limiting the kinds of strategies that IBM can develop and among those strategies are the patent strategies. And then on the other side of it, when you look at the software firms, they were willing to use whichever means they could to stave off IBM. And they sometimes, for the programs for which they did not have patents, they would file antitrust suits against IBM, perhaps in hopes that a judge would see that, this, that IBM's uh, free program would have a very damaging effect on the smaller firm's ability to remain competitive. So antitrust served that purpose of restraining, no, not restraining, limiting the choices available to IBM and serving as one more weapon in case there weren't any patents. So you mentioned um, licensing. Is that something that emerges alongside this or is it a pre-existing sort of legal form that companies, either software companies or hardware companies, begin to adopt as a way of kind of negotiating this new terrain? So licenses, licenses are funny things. Um, every firm I've seen has its own tradition of licensing. The question is, what do they hope that these licenses will accomplish? Uh, and so uh, one thing I've noticed is that the actual text of the licenses complements whichever vision of intellectual property they had. So for example, uh, a, f a firm that considered the most important thing in their software to be their code. They would have filed a copyright registration for the code and they would have had a license that would bind basically contractually the user from restricting the code. So they had a double protection. So the license was sort of an additional protection for that. Um, and in this case, if what was copyrighted was the code, the license would make an actual uh, reference to the code itself. For firms where programming was more of a service, um, the license really had very minimal, uh, very, very minimal content on the programs themselves because what the firm was providing was the appearance of someone who would come in and install it for you. And perhaps the most the license would have done was um, require the user not to interfere with whatever had been uh, installed into the machine already. So these licenses act as sort of a backup plan. Uh, and that's useful for firms. If a patent gets invalidated, 
and that's all you have, then that's it. But if you have a license to fall back on, then you, you can still recover some damages, presumably. And is that a is that something that this is just my own kind of curiosity? Yeah. Like, is is the license as we think of it for like a software license or other things like that? You know, like I get my license for whatever yeah. so that I can utilize it and, and use this program. Was that a pre-existing sort of legal instrument, or was that something that these companies that was being innovated at this time around software? Um, no, licenses have been around for a very long time. Um, if if anything, what what I've seen with the licenses in the earlier period of my story is that they're adaptations from whatever technologies the firm had before. So uh, IBM's licenses for uh, um, the 701 computer in the early 1950s are very similar to tabulating machine licenses in some ways. Even if the wording is different, the spirit of them is uh, rather similar. So it is, it is something that many of the older firms did carry with them. But there's another way in which you can talk about licenses. So these are a firm licensing its program, but if you own a patent and you license it to someone, um, those ones are just money. <laughs> so what changed, what changed for sure and left an especially uh, bad taste in IBM's mouth at some point was how expensive patent licensing was becoming. That I suspect was one of their big reasons too. Uh, opposed patenting software because they could see small firms cropping up everywhere and if all of them had patents they would all sue IBM just simply because IBM was the one giving away the programs for free and they wanted to make money out of them so um, the patent licensing issue was very troublesome for IBM absolutely um. It, it, it sounded like you were finding a lot of really interesting stuff in the archives and you um, you gave the one example of uh, systems engineers discussing you know how they wrote programs at IBM with any other gems or things that surprised you or things that you thought you would find that you didn't find in the um, in the material that you've been looking at so far things that surprised me uh, are uh, statements from IBM executives that describe just how competitive Thomas Watson Jr. hoped that the firm would be. There was this one moment where he brought a few of his executives into the office and uh, scolded them because the firm was losing a lot of money. And after he sent them back to their offices, uh, he sent a messenger to deliver a picture with a note to each of them. It was a picture of a herd of horses being eaten by wolves. And the note says, you better get your heads together. That those pictures don't survive. These were very personal documents, but um, you have records of them. You have descriptions of them. You have people remembering what it was like to receive it. The first two programs ever to be copyrighted in the mid-1960s, um, the office didn't know how to classify them, so it called them books or pamphlets. And until 1980, as far as the Copyright Office was concerned, computer program was to be registered as a book or pamphlet and that has such a huge impact on the kinds of protection that you can get right because that makes it all about this text it becomes the most easily bypassed intellectual property protection ever yeah and it wasn't until 1980 with the computer software copyright act that 
sort of the collection of things that authors of software could submit uh, got expanded uh, and software was declared to be on its own right a category of work eligible for copyrights. Did you have a programming background yourself? Yeah, so I learned uh, to program basically during my math years, which I would count from like 14 on. Um, and that was immensely helpful. But at the same time, later I realized not as important as the historical skills because the code itself can only reveal so much. It can reveal many things, but it might not reveal what the executives at the other end of the building were hoping to do with it. Uh, so it turned out that the history was was more important. Uh, yeah, but still, you know, yeah, I still have to pay attention to the code. But, but it's not the only thing. This I, this is not a project in which I can say, in which I would ever say, oh, you just need to learn how to read code and you'll get it. That's not, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you would like to share? Well, I had a lot of fun reading through the trials transcripts. So this, this lawsuit went from 69 to 82 and it generated thousands of pages. And there were so many moments where I could tell that the judge was just so over it. He just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, there was one moment when the judge said, uh, uh, this entire day has been obnoxious and I won't have any of it. And then one of the IBM lawyers replied along the lines of, may I ask your honor why he is yelling at the top of his lungs? <laughs> so there are these hilarious moments of courtroom drama that, like, that, that I think would be great. Like, TV shows, actually. <laughs> um, th those have been fun, but I need to work that in somehow. <laughs> That's a yeah. scene right there, yeah. you know, in the book. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it. they're really fun. And they happen, I could tell about every month and a half, the judge just could not have it anymore. Because <laughs> they would meet for several hours, two or three times a week. And they, for days at a time, it would be, the lawyers introducing a new piece of evidence, the opposing counsel objecting to every reason why. So at some point, the poor judge, he just couldn't, <laughs> just couldn't do it. Um, but no, I think, I guess the one thing I haven't actually said is, is just how grateful I am for the chance to be here because it's been so good for my work. Uh, just Hagley itself makes me want to write and think just being here and the archives are full of gold, so thank you. To learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships and search our collections, visit hagley.org research. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot org. And to listen to more Stories from the Stacks, you can find us at hagley.org slash storiesfromthestacks, all one word, or simply subscribe to our feed on iTunes or SoundCloud. Be sure to stay tuned for our new podcast, The Mill Race, launching in July 2018.